Hi folks, this is Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life if times get tough or even if they don't. Today is February the 9th, 2016. This is Tuesday. So usually it's just a Just Jack show. Not today, though. Special day. Tuesday this week, Jeff Lawton joins us on the Survival Podcast. It's going to be a great interview. Uh, sit tight, and you're going to hear from one of the best minds in the world that I know at living sustainably, living reliably, uh, self-sufficiency, and self-reliance. That's what permaculture is really all about. A lot of people want to talk about permaculture. I want to talk about more survival topics. I don't know a more germane to the survival world topic than, than permaculture. When you actually look at designing a property on a permaculture basis, you end up with a survival property. But today we're actually going to talk about much higher level stuff than just that. Before we get into that, though, let's go ahead and take care of our sponsors. They do a lot to help take care of you by helping to make sure the show's here for you Monday through Friday, five days a week. Sponsor of the day number one today is a ready-made resources, the company that does what it says and says what it does right on their website. All the resources you need ready-made, ready to go at readymaderesources.com. And when I say all the resources, I mean it from the tactical to the practical, from guns to gardens and everything in between. You'll find it at ready-made resources. 12-volt appliances to go with your solar and wind projects? Check. They've got that. You want to do solar and wind? Hey, they've got everything you need for that. You want long-term storage food? You want it by the can or by the case, they've got it. You want to make your own long-term storage food, you need uh, Mylar bags and O2 absorbers, they've got that. You want gamma lids for your five-gallon buckets, got it, check, no problem. You want to start canning, whether it's water bath or pressure canning, they've got what you need. Dehydrators, got that too. Want to get over and look at some tactical accessories or firearms if you're in their state or have an FFL to ship to, they've got it all, man. Like I said, the practical to the tactical, the guns to gardens, and everything in between. You'll find it all at the company that does what they say and says what they do. ReadyMadeResources.com, a long-term sponsor of the Survival Podcast. Happy to serve you with great pricing and great service. Again, ReadyMadeResources.com. Next up today, sponsor of the day number two, Sawtooth Tactical. You'll find them over at SawTac.com. You'll get all the stuff you need to live that tactical lifestyle if you get on over to SawTac. Veteran-owned, veteran-operated, and nestled in the wilderness of the Sawtooth Mountains. That's why they call them SawTac. And when I say everything, I mean everything from the awesome manly titanium spork, Maxpedition bags, Magpul magazines, SOE tactical gear, and everything else you can think of. If it's tactical, they have it at Sawtooth Tactical. Remember the website again, www.sawtac.com, and they also do do a discount for members of the Support Brigade. So if you're a member and you're going to get some tactical material from Sawtac, get into your MSB account, click on Benefits, and look up Sawtac and get that discount. Again, a veteran-owned, veteran-operated company nestled in the Sawtooth Wilderness of Idaho, sawtac.com. Next up, let's take a look at the year that was the episode. Uh, the year is 1727, because the episode 1727, Coffee Comes to Brazil, we have at TSP Wiki. We also have The Hessians Are Coming, The Hessians Are Coming, and we have King George Takes Up His Wife's Challenge. I'm going to read about coffee. Why? I like coffee. It's really good stuff. Anyway, Coffee Comes to Brazil. The coffee bean has been known for centuries. An Ethiopian noticed that his goats became more energetic whenever they chewed the local coffee berries. He began chewing them and became energetic himself. Coffee plants were cultivated in Yemen and shipped through the seaport of Mocha 
toward the end of the 1600s, the Dutch planted coffee beans on the Indonesian island of Java. Now coffee beans have reached Brazil. Coffee plants require a particular environment in order to thrive. Central and South America will be ideal. The plant is susceptible to many diseases, but those diseases have trouble taking hold here. The farmers are watching carefully and destroying infected plants before disease can spread. The coffee plant does well in shade, so it will thrive under the canopy of Brazilian forests. Brazil is about to become a major coffee producer. My take by Alex Shrub. Coffee produces caffeine, and computer programmers everywhere are grateful. But one wonders why the plant would produce it in the first place. In fact, caffeine is toxic to the plant, but caffeine protects the seed from a fungus and bacteria. It might also repel insects. A coffee plant can live for 100 years, but commercial production will fall off after 10 to 20 years due to excess of caffeine buildup in the soil from falling leaves and overripe berries from the plant itself. Yeah, I actually wanted to tell you about something I think is really cool. So, and this has nothing to do with history. I just think it's cool. It has to do with coffee. We went last year to the Fort Worth Botanical Gardens in the wintertime, and last year's winter was much colder than this year's winter. So one of the things we did while we were there, we went into this, this beautiful arboreum that they have where they have all these tropical plants. It's about one and a half acres under glass, and it's just beautiful plants, and it's warm in there, and you feel like you're in a jungle. There's birds flying around, all that kind of stuff. And I see this little sign that says, Coffee Arabica. So I'm looking for the coffee bush, right? Because there's a little, you know how they do them at arboreums. you got a little sign, a little stick stuck in the ground. And I realize the stick is in front of this trunk. And I look up, and there's about a 12-foot tall tree with coffee-shaped leaves and coffee berries hanging off of it. I never knew coffee got that big. But apparently coffee, as we grow it commercially and keep it in the small shrub bush form, is something we do with pruning and manipulation, the coffee actually grows as a great big tree. I, I didn't think I would have believed it if I hadn't seen it myself. Anyway, it's not only my take by Jack Spearco, it's my addition by Jack Spearco today. Uh, next up, let me remind you, if you like the work we do here, you can help support it by joining the MSB. Just go to survivalpodcast.com, click on Members to learn more. I'll leave it there today for that. And I want to give you, before we bring Jeff on, something you can plant in your own backyard to provide food and long-term sustainability How about the Chingapin Nut Tree? Yes, Bob Wells has the plan of the week for us this week. The Chingapin Nut Tree is adaptable from zones 5 through 9. The Chingapin is a subspecies of the chestnut family. It grows to a small tree or bush. Chingapins are delicious, eaten right off the burr in the fall. Chingapins have a single nut in the burr, unlike chestnuts that have divisions. They are understory trees that grow in our native forests. However, heavy logging throughout the U.S. has made finding native chingapins harder than ever. The chingapin tree is excellent for fresh eating, roasting, and wildlife food. Bob Wells specializes in edible landscape, including fruit trees, berry plants, nut trees, as well as hard-to-find specialty fruit trees. Find this plant more at bobwellsnursery.com. And I would tell you, if you live in places with really alkaline soil, probably not the plant for you. If you live in places with deep, darker, more acidic soils, I think you have a real good chance of growing some awesome chingapins. So that's just my take based on my results so far with chestnuts and chingapin here at TSP Ranch Nine Mile Farm. They just don't like it here. I'll just leave it at that. Even when they live, they don't look happy about it. They look like, please kill me. So uh, if you have alkaline soils and uh, harsh environment, brittle landscapes, this is a this is a moist forest tree that is used to growing in its native habitat in deep litter, uh, in deep moist soils on a forest floor with lots of fungal activity, not harsh, brittle, uh, Texas black prairie stuff. So anyway, with that, I'm excited to get into our uh, interview today with Jeff Lawton. Jeff is an awesome guy. He's also a good friend. 
Um, I'm happy to say he's a mentor that became a friend. Uh, Jeff was my biggest mentor longer, long before he ever knew who I was. Uh, as we met initially online and eventually face-to-face, -face, we uh, realized we were really kindred spirits in a lot of ways. And uh, even coming from very different backgrounds and having some dramatically different takes on things, in the end, our goal and our mission is the same. And it has to empower people to live a better life, no matter what happens, and to make them resilient Uh, and to create an environment where people can share information, learn, and actually get things done. And when I brought Jeff on today, my thought was, I'll go to Facebook, I'll get a whole bunch of questions for him, and I'll throw questions at him like, how do I you know, fix my clay soil or whatever? Questions he's answered millions of times. I mean, I think the number he gives out in this interview with questions just through his PDCs is over 30,000 questions have been answered over the years of doing those. Um But as we got into it, right away, I realized that we were headed for high-level discussions. Things like, well, how, how would California be redesigned to become drought-resilient? The whole state. Um, what's holding permaculture back? What are the ethics really about? Why should we not politicize them? Things like that. And as that conversation took that direction, I decided to just go with it. Um, because, you know, we can ask Jeff how to fix clay soil any day. We, he's part of our expert panel. He answers a couple questions like that a month. He's got tons of material online. Uh, a lot of the techniques and tactics are well known at this point. But I think it's time for us to get a little bit more serious about the larger problems in front of us. Um, people often say with the permaculture stuff, you know, is it a survival topic? Well, as I said earlier, when you design an individual property from a permaculture line of thinking, you've created a survival retreat. Plain and simple. That, that's what you've done. Whether that was your intention or not, you, you've addressed every need of every occupant from plant, animal, and human on that property in a way that's sustainable and regenerative. And, and you could not do something that's more designed for survivability than that. But when you take that up at a higher level, you actually start looking at the massive problems our planet has. And, and we do. And, 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 you know, you'll hear Jeff mention climate change here, and I won't challenge him on it because I have a different take on CO2-induced climate change. But climate alteration due to desertification, due to monocropping, due to um, wiping out entire segments of, of animal populations that are supposed to be there, destroying diversity. And, yes, pollutants, actual pollutants in our environment. And I'm not a person that doesn't believe CO2 warms, warms the planet at all. I just think the extremist versions with these three multipliers. And I'll put a link in the show notes today to a video with Stefan Molyneux reading a scientist's explanation of this for you. And, and that's my actual stance, and that means I don't have to explain it anymore. You can go listen to a scientist explain it. and But that doesn't really matter. In the end, we, we both know that the solution to our planet is to reestablish ecosystems. And no matter what you think about carbon, as far as it being a pollutant, it needs to be in our soils. And the number one way we can change things for the better is to put as much carbon in the soil as possible. It's the number one thing that rehabilitates ecosystems and makes them more resilient to the fluctuations that are going to happen throughout time in history. It's the number one thing that helps us to moderate the effects of climatic extremes. It's the number one thing that helps us to be able to sustainably feed people. When people have what they need, when people have their basic needs met, we have less wars. Uh, before we bring Jeff on, my final thought on this is, do you know that there was a time in history that wars were fought over things like salt and pepper? From small skirmishes to broad-scale warfare, over the control of salt and pepper. 
Today, salt and pepper is in every supermarket in the world. We don't have a lot of wars over salt and pepper anymore. Perhaps if we could get the resources that people basically need to be as available to everyone as salt and pepper, we'd have less conflicts as a whole. With that thought in mind, hey, Jeff, man, welcome back to the Survival Podcast. Uh, it's always a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, thanks for joining us. I mean, you're on our expert council now, so you're answering a couple questions a month, and so a lot of the audience really knows who you are. But I always, first question for any guest, because there's people tuning in every day for the first time. Can you tell us, you know, who is Jeff Lawton and, 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 and what do you do and how did you end up doing what you do? Um, well, I'm the managing director of the Permaculture Research Institute in Australia. I live in the uh, subtropics in northern New South Wales. And um, I'm um, primarily a, a, a teacher and uh, of permaculture systems and, and a designer and consultant. And um, what I love to do is actually uh, farm here on, on the 66-acre property um, and um, take people through training programs of how they can experience the, the sort of evolutions that you, and feedback loops you go through as you uh, um, establish a, a permaculture system through to its evolving maturity but um, I got into this from uh, uh, being concerned about the, uh, always really being concerned about the, the situation of um, the environment and how we provide our needs in a way that's uh, sustainable and ongoing. And that comes out of uh, um, being a teenager in the 1970s, really. So, uh, <laughs> and uh, um I emigrated to Australia in 1979 and saw a lot of opportunities um, in this uh, large continent with a small population and permaculture was a, um, a brand new movement then and I just happened to be in the right spot at the right time to get involved early and uh, since 19, uh, I took my, my first design course with Bill Mollison which was also a piece of luck in 1983 which is early in the piece because it only started to be an educated design system in 1979 and and from 1980 actually I got involved in 83 I took my design course with Bill and um, I started teaching in 1991 and and I've um, been teaching ever since and um, I, I keep trying to field the inquiry and, and, and help the movement grow and, and try and get the world you know help the world get to a, a sustainable tipping point by uh, really really Pointing out that most most of the thing we need is um, a, a, an intentional design science approach, which begins with ethics. Cool. Can we, t can we talk a little bit about ethics there? So we have we have three primary ethics that drive permaculture: care of the earth, care of people, and return of surplus. And and that's also been expressed originally in the designer's manual as setting limits to population and consumption. Um, can you kind of walk us through how those three ethics actually guide uh, the design science of permaculture? Because a lot of people look at that and would see those as kind of divorced from each other. There's this ethics thing, and then here's this you know, kind of like design mechanical thing. But the truth is they're intrinsically connected. Yeah, well, there are guiding principles of action. So um, this is where science becomes val more valuable and, and less less destructive or, or, or removes the destructive side of science, even though it may be unintentional. Um, we have to have guiding ethics. Um, 
and, and all traditional peoples had some kind of guiding ethics of, of how to behave so that the um, environment that they interacted with rather than exploited uh, remained stable. So um, the interesting thing about the three ethics is they are actually a corollary of each other. They, they collaborate with each other in action. So, you know, caring for the earth means you're caring for the resources that provide all our needs. Um, and um, that's obviously the, the, the earth's biospheres and the natural systems that are the only systems that are permanently uh, regenerative and um, um, are, are resilient. So uh, they're, they're self-replicating if we if we work with them the right way and, and permanently regenerative. Um, but um, as we care for the environment, we obviously care for people because people without an environment haven't got a future. So um, it, and there's no point in enslaving people and impoverishing people to work for the environment. So we could be sustainable by enslaving people and working them to death. Uh, but that wouldn't be very ethical either. So uh, earth care and people care really fit together. And then what a lot of people don't realize is that if we don't, if we don't return the surplus that we, um, that we get as a benefit from earth care and people care, if we, if we hoard it away and, 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 and keep it for particular individuals or empowering, uh, organizations, are in modern terms often corporations. Um, if we if if we if we don't return most of our surplus back to earth care and people care, then there's a lot of inequality as in the world, and there's a lot of um, people that feel feel that they're they're the ones that are being exploited, um, and that, and and as soon as you get any degree of of suffering or or, or inequality or, or people feeling desperate, you end up with population issues. And, and it's interesting to study what happens when people feel that they have a, a, a wealthy life because their life is meaningful. And, and this is an interesting thing in modern times because it steps beyond money. It, it steps into a, a situation where what actually makes you feel meaningful what makes you feel wealthy uh what makes you feel like you've you've had a rightful life um and and a, and a rightful occupation we often talk about um meaningful and uh, right livelihood so um when when you feel like the consequence of your actions is has improved air quality water quality food quality sensible housing, uh, warmth, friendship and community, um, you start to feel wealthy. Um, and um, when, you're, when you have an abundance of clean air and an abundance of clean water and an abundance of clean food and an abundance of sensible housing that doesn't cost you your life's work to pay off and is replaceable and, 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 and m most of the materials are produced reasonably ethically and, and energy efficiently and have a good embodied energy or they're mostly made out of natural materials. Um, and then you have, you're, you're warm, you're not cold, you're not too hot, you've got sensible sort of climatic conditions that you live in because you've got sensible housing. 
and, and your community is good. It's supportive. It's diverse. It's interesting. It doesn't have to be all the same sort of people, but it's an interesting mix of community across the, the you know, right across the socioeconomic boundaries and cultural boundaries and, and tolerance and everything like that, then you really start to feel, well, I, I'm really wealthy. It, it, it's not a monetary equation here. It's, it's an actual my my enjoyment of of engagement in a, in a in a in a world that's incredibly interesting and and healthy and and almost limitless then then your 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 population actually naturally moderates there is a natural moderation of population um and i w- i was always interested in this because it's one of the last sort of questions i had it, well main questions i had to try and find the answer for with students asking me questions all the time as a teacher of permaculture. What do you do about population? What do you do about population? It's mm. always a question. Um, because obviously it's, it's, <laughs> it's, it's, it's got to, you know, we've got to face this. It's coming at us pretty fast. And, um, we, we edge think a lot in permaculture. And I, I like this idea of like thinking around the edges because the area is not so interesting. If you get the edges right, you sort of encapsulate the problem and, and the area is sort of dealt with very quickly. So I, I just started edge think the population issue. And um, I, from that, I discovered something. So I, I thought, well, where, where, where do we have um, most problem with lack of population where where are where is the population diminishing and and where is the population expanding and i i then found myself at, at polarized examples of humanity where the richest countries are well when we say rich let's it's now i'm talking money but i'm i'm not saying that's really wealth but we perceive wealth as as money so i i don't think that is wealth actually but that's psychologically we think we're wealthy when we got a lot of money um, I know a lot of rich people are actually quite poor, I think. <laughs> but um, but if you look at the richest countries where there's incredible social service and, and there's a great income and everyone's wealthy with money, there you have the most infertility clinics. There you have mo- the most problem with people's um, fertility and, and people have trouble having kids. Um, and that was interesting. As you come down the wealth indicators, you find – that the, the highest wealth is where they have most problem with infertility. And then you come down and down and down until you get the poorer countries. And it's not just education. You go right down to the war zones where people are in that. And there's nothing worse than a war. That's the ultimate issue. If you're in, you know, a war zone, there can be no worse place to be for anyone in humanity. And there you have the highest fertility rates. Um, or, or where people are incredibly suppressed. And then you look in history, it's the same. And you go, what, what is that? What, what? And there is a name for it. It's called the biological effect. And, it, and it's not just in people. It's in all living things. If you stress things, if you stress living elements it, to the point of almost their extinction, um, their fertility rate comes up. It doesn't mean they, they, they breed... Uh, you know, uh, it doesn't mean they breed larger offspring or, or, or necessarily uh, healthier offspring in some ways, but they, they, they breed more. And, and some of those uh, breed genetics are survivors for sure. They breed stronger offspring that can, can, can endure harder um, conditions. So um, 
that there's a there's a um, uh, a higher fertility rate when we when we nearly um, kill a tree and we we partly ring black a tree, it will flower much heavier. You don't mean it doesn't mean you're going to extend its life. It doesn't mean you're going to you're going to actually uh, make that tree in itself healthier. But its breed cycle goes up. It flowers heavier. It fruits heavier. There might be smaller fruit, but every fruit has a seed. And and you sort of see this in in all all life. So it's a kind of an interesting thing that third ethic, where um, uh, we set limits to consumption. In that we we look at consumption as um, if it's non-renewable resources, we need to limit those resources. But if they're renewable uh, resources and they're self-replicating, self-regulating resources, um, then we can use as much as we like because we have to enhance those living resources to keep them renewable and self-replicating. So you know it. These are these are three basic ethics, but the third one is the one that needs more explanation than sure. the first two. And, now, and what I I've seen with that, can... Jeff, and I would like to hear you speak on this a little bit, is I've seen that one dr- turn dramatically political, used as justification to raise taxes or things like that, um, used as justification for taking something produced by one group of people over here and giving it to another group of people over, you know, uh, far away. Where when I look at that ethic and I look at the totality of the the creators Bill Mollison and David Holgram and Holgram coming from a, an anarchist philosophy, it seems that that return of surplus or even if you were to call it a redistribution is to the people that have a stake in it, not a Robin Hood like philosophy of taking from others to 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 redistribute to completely different independent systems. And I feel that that's actually hurt what we're trying to do a lot because we have a lot of very excited young people, and I'm glad to see them, but they also tend to be more of that political stripe. And when you're younger, it's easier to be so because you have not yet actually got enough success to where you actually understand that that means you too. Um, and I just see it kind of as like it should be the most empowering thing we have, and yet if it's twisted the wrong way, it becomes like a boat anchor. Oh, uh, yeah. I, I completely agree with you there. Um, I, I find it very uh, disturbing that people have actually used the rhyming of, uh, <laughs> and, and we care well, just because it rhymes doesn't mean it's right. Rhyming doesn't mean it's right. Um, and to say, earth care, people care, fair share. They've turned the third ethic to fair share. Fair share, and I think that's what you're saying. What do you mean, fair share to who? Not to everybody, because... There's some people who are still behaving badly, and there may always be people who behave badly, but let's hope they're the, very much the minority and not the majority. What we're trying to do is make people realize that there is a way that we can all act in a fair way and, and that benefits ourselves, benefits the environment, and, and, and moderates extreme situations and extremists. I think we are moderators of extreme situations and extremists. And, and, and we see a lot of that word extremist today in the yeah. world. And, and that's not what we're talking about. We're not talking about a, a, a bloodthirsty revolution here. We're talking about a revolution in the way we think so that we can all be in a situation where we realize that people can be the most beneficial element on earth. Everything comes back into some form of balance. But, of course, there will always be some people that – and I think there will always, when I mean always, I mean indefinitely always, be some people who won't quite understand and, and will be, you know, not necessarily acting in the best way. 
But the majority of us, and this is really community, when the majority of us understand that there are guidelines to how we behave so that we become the most beneficial element on earth and we can be as as damaging as we are now we can be equally positive and if you look at that the right way we probably need the population we've got right now to repair the planet quickly (laughs) and to bring it back into more moderated situations and, and I think if we do enough of it we can moderate our climates we can moderate our biosphere everything that's interactive um, and we can go right down to basic principles of photosynthesis where ecosystems major in trees and their interactivity with the with with the atmosphere have have a definite ongoing result in in moderating climatic situations so we can we can we can be in a more predictable situation instead of this unpredictability that's happening now where I, you know, obviously there are changes and people actually debate whether this has happened before. And I'm sure it has happened before. It's not saying it hasn't happened before, but definitely what it looks like is very much our activity has promoted it to happen more quickly again, where our activity, and this is what we need to realize, our activity can hold, hold major events and cycles into a more moderate survivable situation where where our activity can be the buffering element for a a a much nicer scenario of of global sort of life equilibrium um affecting our biosphere and affecting you know the larger energies that are out there in the solar system that affect us so when i look at all that part of what kind of discourages me. And last year when I spoke at, at Permaculture Voices, I was a little angry toward the end of my talk to, and got that passion up to drive the point home because I'm, I'm in a place with over 600 people that are all switched on to permaculture, people that should know the problem is the solution. And there is that element that's, you know, people are the problem. There's too many of us. We need to get rid of some, basically. They don't quite put it that bluntly. But, you know, you hear words like the human population is like a virus and this this concept that, like, everything should just be pristine wilderness and there's no place for us in all of this. And and what I said is you, you have to stop that thinking because we are the only species that we know of anyway in the universe for now that can consciously create life. And, and I don't mean in a laboratory. I mean that... A human being, through their intentional actions, can actually take a dead ecosystem and revive it and restore it, and that we know of nothing else that can do that consciously. Cattle or big herds of wildebeest or things like that may play this integral role with the way they move around with top predators. But they don't think, you know what, over there, it's all screwed up. Let's trot on over there for a while, take a dump, let the lions come after us, and then we'll come back over here and fix that spot where we actually can say to ourselves, what's the analog that actually does that and make it happen? And if we're ever going to do this, the concept that human beings are the problem, it needs to go away and it needs to be understood it's human beings' behavior. That, that if we actually, I think most people, if they actually understood what we were doing, would be willing to do things differently because you're not really being asked to give much up. You're just being asked to do things in a smarter way. Yeah, I think we've got a lot to gain. You actually realize a lot of people come to our systems and realize, hey, that's a smarter way to, to behave, and we, we get a lot of benefit from it. Um, and we see lots and lots of knock-on effect. Um, 
And, and I think initially now a lot of people are coming to our system from a health perspective. Um, I know the big numbers are out there in the, in the, uh, the, the health inquiry because that's actually becoming very, very obvious. And especially it's expressed in our children. Um, and um, we're seeing the rise of all kinds of, of, of um, uh, numbers in, in autism and Asperger's and, and, and uh, there's some frightening figures coming. But um, there, are, there is a growing number of scientists that, uh, like there was a growing number of scientists that talked about climate change and sea level rise and they were um, – that they, they were they were scorned on for that at one time, but now it's kind of accepted. There's definitely something going on. There's a growing number of scientists that now believe if you took people off the earth, if 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 we were exterminated now, the environment would still slide um, and into a into a degrading scenario. We've gone past the environmental tipping point, um, which actually means if we accept that, we realise the only thing that can turn it around is people. The earth. And the ecosystems of the earth possibly need us now as a rep- to go into a reparative mode. And the thing is, with modern technology, which I, I rather like appropriate use of modern technology, otherwise we wouldn't be talking to each other like this across the continental divide, um, a modern ca- technology can do this. A um, modern technology can, can repair the world very, very fast, and much faster than people realize and I think very soon we'll have large enough projects up where it will be uh, noted and, re- and, 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 and people will, will take note and say that's, that's an investment worth making. Like the work of the, um, the World Bank funding the lowest plateau in China, 35,000 square kilometers the size of Belgium, repaired in 10 years, one of the most degraded landscapes on Earth, brought back. Um, and, and because we've got technology of film, digital media, and internet, um, it, we've been able to see that. We've been able to, you know, extend that work out. And um, and 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 many people have never heard about this type of approach. Now, start to get some idea that oh, I didn't realize it was all possible. Because I think that there's there's part on the other side that says, hey, we got to feed people. Um, because when you start talking about this, they just think you're talking about organic agriculture or something like that. They don't really understand that we're talking about a more ecosystemic approach and that there's landscapes that we, we, we could be repairing right now that could have tremendous yields of food, fibers, medicines, etc. but they don't necessarily have to be managed for that specific purpose. Many of these systems are simply damaged and in need of repair. Something needs to be alive there, and, and there isn't anything alive there, if that makes sense. Yeah, yeah. Well, a lot of <coughs> ecosystems in the, in the world have, have been damaged to a point where they're continuing to degrade because very small amounts of inter, inter, damaging in, interaction by people, like just a little bit of extra grazing at that point, holds it in a sliding scenario. And if you then remove that and say, well, let it repair itself, it will still take a very long time because they've gone way past their own um, measures of, of and been able to regenerate and pioneer themselves back very quickly. Um, but if we then interact it, it, and, and we, we use our design system of harmonizing with the landscape and the continue, understanding the continuum of form of landscape and how it interacts with local climate, it doesn't take much, and, and we can bring landscape back incredibly quickly. 
But a lot of landscape people don't realize if you just leave it alone, it doesn't repair itself very fast at all because we've, we've, we've been able to do so much damage beyond what we've realized was the consequence of that damage. So um, I think the information age could well be that one of the saving graces here and then how people then go into action. And, and, and I think uh, Bill Mollison made the comment that um, this is the final war. Um, this is the real action out there. If you're after action, this is the final action. And we have to win this one or uh, the lights go out forever. Um, it sort of goes towards a dead planet. Well, let's look at some of the really big problems we have right now. I'm like, well, what would you do if somebody said, hey, Jeff, we're going to let you fix it. We're going to give you whatever resources you need and fix it. And the first thing they said is, okay, California, brittle landscape, drought conditions, got all these millions of people that need to have water. How do you fix this? I have some ideas, but I'd like to hear you know, what you would do because I, I actually don't think the problem is as difficult to solve. I think it's every bit as big as it's made out to be, but I don't think it's as difficult to solve as it's made out to be. Well, I, I, I'd go out to the edges, um, and um, for that I mean out to the, the, the top watersheds and start by you know the right sort of water harvesting systems in the top watersheds to um, – soak water back into the landscape, rehydrate landscape and reforest those watersheds on those contour lines that soak water in and, and start from the top down, coming down into uh, a recharge system because uh, a lot of those dry landscapes, um, inevitably, you're probably going to always have to depend on some groundwater, but you need it to be shallow groundwater with a permanent recharge from rain and not have fast flash runoff, but moderate the runoff and, and soak a lot of it in intentionally by design. And then I'd come back to the opposite edge, and that's down to the larger cities of California, and start to manage the hard, hard, hard service runoff of stormwater and, and, and start to um, work out with the civil engineers, how instead of creating hard service flash runoff, we actually um, take that water into landscape and into storage systems right where it falls, where the people live. So that's sort of the intent zone um, and change the civil engineering. For instance, Los Angeles runs off as um, uh, an equivalent volume in stormwater straight down the concrete L.A. River mostly. Um, equivalent to half of what it imports um, into the city, enormous distances from the Colorado River. Um, so we could save half that water right where it actually falls by changing the civil engineering of, 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 of stormwater. And, and then we'd actually have to start to look at how we actually feed a large amount of the people with perimeter urban, urban and perimeter urban agriculture from that runoff. So you, you can't just redistribute people all out over the landscape. You've got to deal with people where they are um, presently in position. And then also work out at the outer periphery and work your way downhill from the top watersheds down. And I'm pretty sure we could recharge. Well, I'm absolutely certain you could totally recharge the California landscape with a, enormous amounts of water. It, it is dry, but it's not as dry as many places on Earth where we've, we've worked in small areas and um, and recharged um, landscapes surprisingly well um, without being given whole watersheds to work on. Um, I, I could see um, most of the rivers that originally flowed water continuously um, 
re- recharged and running perfectly clean water through California uh, continuously um, as they did before. Um, and so they could easily do again by our sensible design. And there would be enormous employment, um, enormous benefits. And I'd go a little bit further to say we could go better than what was there before. We could actually improve on what was historically in position by um, our, our great ability to design and apply appropriate technology. But again, going back to the start of our conversation, it has to be governed by ethics. Mm. How do you feel about the role livestock plays in something like that? On, on land that scale, it, it almost seems to me that there has to be some level of holistic grazing or something like that to 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 refertilize things and to to do things that you can't just have humans doing. Absolutely, it, it's absolutely essential. Um, and, and unless you're going to wait for the repopulation of the native wildlife that would, was was taking that position originally, which we really can't. We're in much more of a hurry than that. Um, when you look at you know the way we are producing our uh, our animals in in feedlots, um, feedlot dairy, feedlot beef, and, and chicken factories and different things, it's just bizarre. Um, and and you look at holistic grazing systems that 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 bring live bring livestock into a situation of reparative management. You're looking at l- larger, longer, broader time cycles and area cycles over the brittle landscape. But it's not a problem at all. And it's almost absolutely essential to incorporate the livestock in those landscapes, particularly, if not all landscapes, but particularly the dry brittle. It it won't easily come back without it. And it will come back in another form if you don't if you exclude animals. And, And then probably in the end, it will come back to wildlife management, which will look very similar anyway after a few Changing long-term cycles. We're talking about long-term cycles as you get drier and drier to the arid landscapes. You're talking about longer, broader, uh, longer, broader, long time cycles over area, stretched out cycles. Um, and, and there's not a problem that that is that is absolutely essential. And as you come down into into closer and closer to uh, People populations, there's smaller and smaller versions of that, even coming down to small livestock. Um, actually, I can't see any other way of, of, of replacing the speed of repair with that, with, if you exclude animals, I can only see it, ex- it taking longer to achieve. So, uh, yeah, I agree. I mean, part of it is just, I don't think people that like want to get rid of livestock even understand how a lot of this stuff works. So my field to my west has been my biggest problem, and I, I can't support cattle here. It's too small. Goats are – I don't want to try to keep them from climbing fences and eating everything. So I went with ducks, and when we put ducks through that field, there wasn't much there for them, but the the stuff that did grow – when it died or when it was mowed or what have you, it lay on the ground as, as dry carbon, and the majority of the nutrient in it was just oxidizing away. And there's a field just a little further to my west that hasn't been touched for, for 12 years. There's like two trees in it that have managed to survive, and it's just dead, bushy nothing. And my field's green now because when that material, that plant material goes through that animal, 
that animal takes and, and does things to allow the minerals to become bioavailable, but they also take the carbon and the nitrogen that they're taking in, and by converting it to manure, it's a totally different thing when that's laying on the ground than a dry piece of, of grass or a dry piece of weed, if that, if that makes sense. And then they also smash those weeds into that manure, and then that biological process can actually start to regenerate. If we don't put animals into that system, the amount of energy that you have to use with, say, equipment or whatever to do the same thing is massive. Well, they, yeah, they're, they're returning their surplus. Yeah, yeah. They're, they're, they're following the third ethic. They're returning their surplus as, as, as um, carbon pathways and nutrient pathways, and, and, and that's what we're managing them to do better. That's all we're doing. And, and, and I can understand how people are concerned about animals and, and the, the use of animals and the consumption of animals. I, I, I can totally understand that. Often it's because they're in a position of privilege in, in, in highly populated, stressful areas themselves. When I look at cities and, and the way they, they are today, they look like feedlots to me. They mm. look like animal factories of people. And, and I see animals being very stressed in those scenarios, and I see people being very stressed. And then they, 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 they're, they're empathetic with, with the animals who are in the same situation. And they tend to think that that's what, that, that's, that's always going to be stressful if we engage animals. It's not. You're, you're allowing ducks to be ducks as they want to be, chickens to be chickens as they want to be, and animal, and you know, all your larger grazing animals to be what they want to be. And, and of course, we're, we're managing them as top predator. Um, so we're, we're, we're dealing with it as sensitively as we can, um, because they are all fantastic converters. We're, we're managing incredible conversions from one element to another, often mainly through animal processes or a large part of it through animal processes. And if, if we don't do it, then, then, then the wildlife moves in and there will be predators moving in. I'm very interested in that whole process. Um, and if you look at areas of the world that have been deserted for whatever reason, even you look at Chernobyl in, in, uh, in, in, in the old Soviet Union there, where, where the, the nuclear ex, um, accident happened and it's been deserted. Now there are, there are wolf packs in Chernobyl. Um, in Main Street, there's, there's, there's YouTubes about this. Mm-hmm. And, and they're back in because they're, they're managing wildlife because wildlife has exploded in that, in that zone. Now, that is not a dry, brittle zone, by the way. And we've got to always remember which climate we're talking yeah. about. Yeah. <laughs> we're talking about quite a temperate climate here. I mean, I look uh, at the United States and I look at it this way. We're not going to have that restored unless the whole population dries up and blows away. From, from the simple, you know, invention in, in the 1800s of barbed wire, that this country's primary ruminant species was the bison, and their migratory paths were thousands of miles long, and they did move along those migratory paths for seasonal reasons, and they maintained the, the type of movement due to predators, primarily in this case the wolf. Um, so the wolves, except for what's been reintroduced in Yellowstone, is, is not here. The, the, the ability for them to migrate is not here. So we have to mimic that because it's, it's, it would be impractical. I, and, and trust me, I'm probably one of the people who would actually like it the most, but it would be impractical to all of a sudden have just a hundred million bison running loose in, 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 in the United States of America. It, it just doesn't, 
makes sense if you're going to have cities and stuff like that. And one real quick thing too, though, when you were talking about the cities looking like like feedlots, it's funny because what I've referred to them is their tax farms, right? So the the people that extract the, the the energy of people in a monetary form have basically created the cities like a conventional farm. You make sure that the cow is not going to be killed by a predator, so you put police force in. You you make sure that you know that they have basic shelter and food. You feed them, and if you look at the food pyramid, it looks like that it breaks down in the same structure as like a bag of cattle feed. And you give them medicines that just barely keep them alive, and then you can extract from them. And that's that's what it kind of feels like when you look at it. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's interesting that we do these analogies of. Um, what happens to the drinking water? What happens to the, um, to the sewage? And we package that up and, and drop it off as, as, as another damaging element somewhere else. And, and when you hear people giving you facts and figures about, oh, how much water does it take to raise a, you know, a pound of beef or, um, how much, you know, water does a cow consume? Um, in a feedlot, that is like the sewage in a city. It's a concentrated somewhere and it's a problem. But actually, an animal in its natural environment, it, it doesn't consume much water at all because it, what it drinks, it urinates at the other end as an improved product to the landscape. The food pyramid with us at the top doesn't take into consideration the matrix of interactions in an ecosystem. So it, it, it's kind of like, well, you can be convinced to think in, in, in a linear or a pyramid top hierarchical way. But actually, when you step outside and look at ecosystem interactions, it's a complex matrix of, 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 of life web. It's not a linear thing at all. It's an interesting set of, of, of interactive elements. And, and, it, and it's a, a big spiraling event. Um, it, it's it's a, a spiraling matrix of life web. Uh, you were mentioning the buffaloes, and a pattern is something I'm always trying to explain to people. And it's interesting to look at migratory patterns. Um, migratory patterns actually are exactly the same patterns as trees, and and the buffalo spiraled through the trunk and out to the to the to the um, a sort of a canopy branched out pattern. So they actually dispersed as they got up to their, 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 their grazing areas and then concentrated again in their, in their patterns of, of migration as a group, as a herd, concentrated down the trunk of a tree, if you like, and then out to the roots of their, of their grazing patterns. And all migratory patterns actually are the same as the movement of, 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 uh, xylem and phloem in, in a tree. Um, you know, the roots bring minerals up to the crown, um, with, with water and, and, and the sugars and, the, and, and, uh, starches and saps are harvested in the leaves and come down and feed the roots going in the opposite direction. They cross over at the point of germination. So when you look, you know, you look at the patterns of movement, the patterns of flow, the patterns of form, there are very, very constant patterns that we can continuously see out there in the environment, in the universe, everywhere we look. Now, if we harmonize with those patterns, all of a sudden, it starts to cooperate with us. We're cooperating with it. We're cooperating with what it, what is actually energy expressed in form, flow, and movement. And, and 
this is not a taught subject. No. This is something we need to understand. It's everywhere around us. There are very few things that are measurable out there in, 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 the, in the natural world. Um, every, you know, there's nothing that's perfectly round. There's nothing that's perfectly flat. There's nothing that's perfectly square. There's, nature has some linear movement in very, very small increments, but not much. Otherwise, the only thing that's measurable is what we've constructed. And, and, and that is of value to us if we use it correctly. But if we take it out of scale, we take it out of order, then, then this is where chaos occurs. And, 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 and chaos is a not, not a nice event. It's not a moderating event. It leads to extremes and extremists. So, you know, as we, as we, as we get into moderation, we start to see all kinds of things dispersing out in natural patterns, including people. You know, we, we get back into our, our, our natural positions instead of our unnatural assemblies and chaotic situations. We, we appear to be going towards, we, we seem to be going into more chaos um, instead of less chaos. And, and I think if enough people understand this, if enough people hear this, this becomes the, 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 the information they entertain themselves with. They, 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 it becomes very entertaining to inform yourself further and further down this if you like you can call it this intellectual track because it is i think it is um uh an evolution of the way we think we're 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 we're, we're extending a new thought process by intentional design yeah when you were talking about that pattern all i could think of is that pattern basically is a torus pattern and, and that pattern repeats itself like through almost everything, um, in, including we have now, you know, imagery of, of like sectors of uh, the, the, the like the galactic galactic clusters that, that appear to, to emulate that that flow and that pattern. I don't know how much that really is permaculture, but I am big on the pattern recognition thing too. And it seems like most systems that are actually functioning. Uh, in a, in a resilient and replicated manner, take on some version of that toratic pattern. Yeah, yeah. There's this um, the, the core pattern is almost like an apple core. It's also an explosion. Um, but there is that that sort of like the, the the stem, the trunk of the tree, the branching pattern, and the root pattern expressed out in in um, at, at, at its extremities. It's slowed down by um, viscosity. And it, and it, and in its trunk, it's slowed down by inertia. So the opposite ends is inertia and viscosity. And, and as we start to explore that and understand it, um, and when we look at the natural world and the way it's, it maintains its stability, it maintains its fertility, it, it maintains its productivity, then we see what it is we need to emulate. Then we, we, we understand how that threads its way like a secret code. And it shouldn't be secret. It should be totally understood by everybody. This is, this is really the answer to design. Understanding that there is a code out there of the way energy expresses itself in form and, and living systems. And we're, we're part of that. And as, as we engage in it, we get the best partner, the, the strongest partner, um, that, um, to work with us. And that's, that's the, the natural systems. Um, and we can we can interact with appropriate technology. Of course we can. I, I mean, I'm I'm a director of 
of earthworks all the time. I mean, I, I'm directing large technology machines, big bulldozers, and I don't mind if they're satellite guided at all. If we're going to do California or any of these landscapes in trouble, you know, it's going to be fine to use satellite guided bulldozers that give us like real accuracy. Not a problem. These are, these are great technologies if they're used the right way. Um, and we can definitely go into fast track reparative mode. Well, and I, I, I get a little bit irritated with the people that get upset. Well, you're using an excavator. That's burning fossil fuels. Uh, first of all, I know in your house you have a light switch, so let's stop. But the other thing is, like, I do believe that oil, coal, gas, etc., I believe those are all finite uh, forms of energy, that there is a limit to them, period. And, and exactly how long we have for that limit, I, I don't know. But I know that while they're here, somebody is going to use them, and I would much prefer that they are used to do things like put in systems of permanence that will outlast 20 generations of humanity than to light up Broadway. Yeah, I think we can definitely appropriately use um, energy, um, and if we all appropriately use energy, there would probably be endless amounts of fossil fuels because it would probably replenish within fossil timelines because uh, we wouldn't be using it up in that timeline, but it is the at this moment in time, it's the it's the embodied energy that you use to establish a system, and how long that system lasts over its lifetime. The, the extension of energy over its lifetime, the production, the manufacture of a project product um, extended over the lifetime of that product pro, uh, product. So when you're talking about creating a permanent system which is indefinite, indefinite, goes on indefinitely, it's permanent, and you're going to use a, a little bit of fossil fuel and a manufactured um, earth-moving machine that's only going to spend a day or two build, building the earthworks for you and then can go on every day of its machinery life doing the same thing, building permanent systems that go on indefinitely. It's a tiny bit of energy. It's, it's minuscule. You can replace it with a few trees over their lifetime, which may live you know, hundreds, if not some trees, a thousand years. There's, there's no worries about an energy audit on that. I'll take anybody on any time on that, any time. It's basic mathematics. It, it's actually Sesame Street 101. No problem. And like, you need to think. Everybody needs to think it through a little bit. This is why. This is why. And I laugh about this with my students. Unless you ask a well thought out question. Most permaculture answers start with, it depends. If you ask a really thought out question, a permaculture question, it doesn't start with the word words, it depends. Um, you've got to think out your questions to get past that. Because <laughs> you've defined, to write, ask, ask the question properly, you have to define what it depends upon. And, and therefore, you've led yourself to the answer, I think, is where you're at. Um, on, on right. that though, can we go, go ahead? That's uh, I think that's that's the that's the interesting inquiry of permaculture. It it makes people think. <laughs> yeah. It makes people think about the right things, and that's what we need to do. Can you tell us about some of your current new project stuff you're working on? Um, well, um, we've got a wonderful project going in India. I've got two two of my interns out there in India, um, and um, we're working for the Hands Foundation, one of our students, and um, it's a great foundation. Um, your American viewers might know the, the Drink Five Hour 
It's the company uh, funded a, a large um, wow. foundation wow. in India, um, and um, their um, um, their intention is to do a whole state of India, uh, which uh, I've got guys out there working on. We've done incredible demonstration sites. We've got a uh, some stuff up on Facebook about that. It's going a long way. They've got a lot of alternative energy stuff going and appropriate technology stuff going. Um, we're just about to start uh, um, a wonderful project working with the royal, one of the royal family members in Malaysia. And um, we've got uh, a 250-acre site in uh, Malaysia that is a 25-year-old government park that will be uh, under conversion between now and 2020 into probably the largest demonstration permaculture demonstration site on earth. Um, it's uh, sort of uh, Kaduri Farm in, in Hong Kong is is something I admire greatly. It's going to be along those lines, but truly wet tropics. It's uh, three degrees in the equator, 20, 20 meters above sea level, about 70 feet above sea level, and um, about a mile from the ocean, two kilometers from the ocean. Um, so a uh, great subtropical project and uh, it's uh, getting everything it's getting ev- you know we're, we're putting everything in we're even putting a five acre tropical subdivision like a village homes davis california of the tropics um you know they, they, they've, they've expanded it beyond my big picture which is great um and um here at zaytuna farm we've got a lot of um intern programs running now to develop um um, farm managers, uh, project managers. We've got a real project manager program running. Um, that's our main work on the ground here. And then we're producing more and more films. We're doing more and more films um, because our films have done a lot of good, tried to create informative films. And um, and then I'm working on a, um, um, a new online course about to be released pretty soon um, where I've uh, tried to translate Bill Mollison's manual into what I think he's saying, um, chapter by chapter, paragraph by paragraph, section by section. And um, we're putting in a lot of digital media, animation, uh, really good um, uh, B-roll film and explanations with lots of extras. And um, we're hoping to release that pretty soon and and um, give people access to the information they need as, as quickly as possible. So uh, um, we can look out for that. Um, it's probably my biggest body of work ever. <laughs> and uh, um, I'm not much of a writer, but um, um, I like doing the, um, the quick films and, and getting people um, educated online. Uh, it's been my recent passion, so I've, um, uh, I'm enjoying engaging in that um, in a very big way. Can you talk a little bit more about the intern program you're running? Because you went off of having like all these students coming and going and went to like this more long-term intern-based solution, and you said – you know, you would interview people, so it's something you have to qualify for versus just, hey, uh, these these opportunities are available. And and I, I kind of know the answer to this question, but I, I kind of want you to say it. Like, why did you take that approach? Um, well, I, I particularly wanted to uh, produce project managers, people who are committed to go out and and manage projects, and then uh, for those to go on. That's after one year, you get to that stage, I believe. And that's pretty quick, even in one year. Um, and then to go on and the second year and become a project manager, but also someone who knows how to administrate a project, actually design a project from the get go um, and um, educate on a project. 
um, to be an educator so you can you can cover all the bases. Um, I, w- I wanted to make sure that I had uh, people who who were driven and had some experience, um, so um, they were already you know reasonably well qualified. Um, and um, I still have our site open to other teachers, so uh, people like yourself, if you want to come over and teach at Zaytuna Farm and use it as an example while you teach, we have the education program. But part of the deal is you, you, you know, our interns come in and do a bit of teaching with you so they get teacher's experience. But I, I've, I've found that uh, we've got more projects coming in than I've got uh, – project managers that are well trained to fill those positions. Everybody that I've trained over the years have been have left here once really well trained with confidence and experience have ended up being overemployed. They've got more courses they can teach, they've got more projects they can go to and, and they don't feed back to to our system. I'm trying to create teams of people that continuously feed back to us and then get redeployed out. Uh, so we're trying to centralize the inquiry. A lot of people have come to us and, and say, you know, can you run a project for us? And, and I, there's only so many I can get to myself. And so I have to produce very well-trained people that I know can get out there and really go through the hard yards to get a project up, implemented, established and running. Um, and I'm trying to get more and more of these training centers set up. I think we need thousands of training centers like Zaytuna Farm here that actually have the ability to give people the real experience of what it takes to manage a project. It's pretty dogged stuff. This is not a family farm. This is this is hard work and, and I'm always extending the system and 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 um I'm I've I've got Zaytuna Farm Facebook now and I'm interviewing the interns as they come through. And um by the way, quite a few of them are actually Americans, um, and um, I've got a Texan on site as well. Uh, oh. I've had quite a few Texans come through, and um, and um, they've got to be tough. They they and um, they've got to get through it. it. It's not easy to realise, you know, what it takes to get a project up. And and this is uh, this is Australia. This is not you know this is not the difficult side of the world where people are really in trouble this is pretty comfortable here and they still find it hard but they're getting there they get their second wind after a while you know there's a sort of three months a six months a 12 months and and by the time they've done two years um, the ones that make it and i want 80 percent competency in all the subjects i think you have to cover and that's a big list of subjects um, I'd, I'd more or less guarantee any of these people were producing that's what i wanted I, I felt that's what we needed and these people can set up centers like this again each center they each project they set up could potentially end up as a another project training center project manager training center that's what i I wanted to sort of self-replicate these systems and and they'll all be better than this one every single one of them will be better than this one this one's been uh um you know they're always uh better when you um um set them up in retrospect (laughs) <laughs> yeah, you learn a lot as you develop a property. I, I, I've got some things on, on this property here, and this is probably the third property that I really put some development into, that if I started over, I would do differently. Um, <laughs> scaling it back for a little bit here, on 
smaller properties like mine's a three acre property a lot of people aren't working with you know quarter acre half acre properties etc i think a lot of times it's better for a person to start out with a small property especially if they're not going to be one of these people deployed across the world if you're somebody that's trying to build a property mostly for themselves because i know what happens when you finally get a piece of land with some size to it and you get your hands on an excavator you want to you want to go and blow and i really think people need to to kind of take i think i, I think it was you that i heard say this to start, walk out your back door, look down, there's a square foot, design that. And then design the square, the four square feet around it, and then, you know, the eight square feet around that, and kind of work out from that zone zero out. Because what happens is you get disjointed. I've got, you know, I had some things going on that were like, okay, that's way over there now, and it, it hasn't been interconnected to the rest of the system yet. And you get ahead of yourself, and I've got a very brittle landscape, and that makes it even worse. And I think that there's a lot of people out there that they're so worried about, you know, getting their hands on 40 acres, they, they do well to, to, to properly manage an acre. Yeah, I, I, I was very lucky. I've been lucky uh, in my experience. When I took my course with Bill in 83, I was on uh, a residential block of land, not even a quarter of an acre or an eighth of an acre. And um, I, 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 I designed that and it worked. That wasn't too hard. I learned a bit, and then I jumped straight into 34 and a half acres, mm. and that was that was hard, and it was it was difficult, and I, I slogged my way along. I, I got I learned a lot there, and I, I got a lot of blisters. I made a lot of mistakes, but then I downscaled to five, and when I was on five, it was it was just fun, and I ended up with seven acres on uh, seven dams on five acres, and and people may have seen that. Um, um, I've got, I made a little film about that design in, in, in my film, um, that I put out for free. And, and then I, then I got invited by Bill to manage the Permaculture Institute, uh, Tagari Farm <laughs> when he retired. And that went up to 148 acres and then he tagged on another five, which is his original property. So it's 153 acres. So <laughs> I went eight to an acre. 34 and a half acres down to five up to 153 which is like what that was like chaos with i ended up with 30 volunteer staff because everyone wanted to volunteer on bill's old property and then i downscaled here to 66 so when it came down from 153 to 66 this has been great fun and over i know it's taken what are we 2006 so it's taken 14 years but uh, we're over at every single inch of this 66 acres, and, and a lot of it was cell grazing, by the way. The cows have done more – cows, goats, and horses have done more than anybody else. As I, as I got in my electric laneway and cell grazed my way as a threaded grazing pattern through the diverse polyculture of Zaytuna Farm, which is a crazy landscape. I mean, this landscape's crazy. You'd never do this on a family farm. You wouldn't want to do this on a family farm. It's not built to be that. It's built to be an experience for people. Um, but um, um, it's been so much easier to go up and then scale down, go up, make all the mistakes, scale down again. Um, so, um, it, and I think if 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 you're on if you're on um, you know a residential lot and you went to someone with you know an acre or or maybe acre and a half. And said, what do they do? And could I work that? When you came back to a, to a small, um, residential lot, it'd look quite easy. Yeah. You know? Yeah. 
If you went from a residential lot to, a, you know, a courtyard or a balcony, it'd be real easy. And in fact, you do it out of therapy. You just do it to get your sanity. <laughs> or you went to a roof garden. If you went from an like, urban quarter acre to a roof garden, it'd be picture perfect. So there's this scale up, come back. Scale up, come back is, is quite an interesting lesson. Um, and, um, yeah, it, 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 it should all be fun. I mean, it is fun. If it's not fun, you've got the design wrong, <laughs> which is a great saying of Graham Bell. Graham Bell is a um, uh, permaculture teacher, wrote the book The Permaculture Way. He's in Coldstream in Scotland, uh, right near where Braveheart actually happened, the movie, uh, right on the Scottish borders. I, I visited Graham this year. His garden is 800 square meters. So what's that? It's less than a quarter of an acre, and, and it's 25 years old. And it's and it's at the same latitude as Moscow, right? And it produces 1.2 metric tons a year. And and he's coming to teach here this year. He's coming to Zaytuna Farm uh, to teach. Um, you know, as far as you know, someone like he to me, he's an icon. I mean, it's amazing, amazing man. And and the privilege I had to go through his garden in midsummer um, was. Incredible, incredible. Um, it should be the, a national treasure of Scotland. It, it probably won't be, but it should be. Um, and, 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 you know, these are, these are things we've got to get out there and shoot these things on camera and get them, get them out to people. They don't, people don't realize what's possible. Um, I think that's the most important thing that we can be doing to spread permaculture right now is, is revealing what's possible on large and small scale. Because I know what really switched me on to this from the very beginning, about eight years ago now, was your little thing greening the desert. Because I had this garden, and it was a little bit easier piece of land than I have now, but it was kind of tough. It was black clay, and it was a small backyard and all. And we were in the middle of another one of our droughts, which I just call summer now. And, you know, I had been kind of just bitching about a lot of how, how tough it was. So I watched that, and I went, oh, you have no excuse. If this guy can go out in the middle of a flipping desert and do this then what should you be able to do in a much more mild climate? And that led me to the question, well, why aren't you? Why haven't you been? Why has everything been, you know, as difficult as it has? Because I grew up, you know, basically on a homestead in Pennsylvania with soil and climate where you could take a tomato and throw it on the ground and come back next year there's tomatoes there growing for you. You didn't, it wasn't, there was no difficulty in it. But I'm going, it's, it shouldn't really be this hard. So that led me into finding uh, the Global Gardener series by, by Bill. And by the time I was done with that, I, I think I was further along than a lot of people, and I don't mean this to sound egotistical or anything, just because I looked at it a different way than most people who have taken a PDC because I had the systems thinking from my other professions. So as soon as I started taking a look at it in a systems way, everything became really obvious and as soon as I started to understand things, I would have this, and I would realize how how resistant people's minds can be. Like I was having a conversation with one guy, and he said, "Well, what if I don't want seven layers in my system?" And I'm like, "Well, they're there. They're spatial, right? You either put something in them, or some something will be put in them for you." And but it was all all that was for me was that one exposure to, "Hey, did you know you could do this?" And I think the more we can do that to people, the more we can get people out there passionate teaching and doing. Isn't it interesting, Jack, that in, in today's 
society, we talk about online, we talk about systems in computers, and 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 if we if we have a hole in that system, you 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 get a virus. Yeah. You know, like we actually use the same terminology in the computer networks and systems. And when you when you translate the analogy across to your systems of of computers, we're system thinking in this in this computer network world. And when you say, look, guys, just get in the garden from the screen and use almost the same system thinking across there. But and and enjoy the you know the smells the touches and all the sensory input that you don't get on a screen, and I never thought I would try using the the, the translation medium of the screenager point in history we're at because you know the the average young person in fact the average adult almost you spend sixty hours in front of a screen every week. Um, so to translate the screen experience into the garden, if you get it right. It, it still it still germinates the seed of permaculture, and I, I'm I'm really keen to try to aim at the 99% of the world, and that's just a terminology. 99% of the population of the world who haven't yet heard the word permaculture and might need the seed germinating somewhere inside them, <laughs> you know. <laughs> um, and, and and I'm I'm finding every way that I can thread the information into that larger audience. That larger audience is the interesting one um, because I think you only have to plant the seed and it starts to germinate sooner or later because we are starting a system think, um, and um, that's what it's about. It's about it getting being interested in how you, how you system think your way through um, ecology and productive ecosystem assemblies. Yeah, I mean, I, I'm constantly asking myself the question, what do we need to do to make permaculture more broadly accepted, um, to move beyond preaching to the choir in many ways, to to stop being somewhat elitist, I guess is, is the way. And I almost think we have like these multiple elitist factions within permaculture now where we have people that if you're not a vegan, you're not a real permaculturist, and I don't know where you got that. Um, and, and, but we also have like this... This concept that, oh, well, that person's not green enough or what they're doing is not regenerative enough. And, and to me, if I can get a person to take a single step in the right direction, I don't care what it takes. I'll, I'll do it to get them to take that one step because it's always that first step that's the most difficult thing to, to get people to do. Once they take a step... And the world doesn't explode. They don't die. Whatever they were afraid of doesn't happen. And things are just a little bit better. Then it's a natural impulse for that person to take a second step and a third. And if, if, if you were to define the journey as a hundred steps and that person only takes 50, that's 50 they wouldn't have taken otherwise. And I'll take what I can get. I guess if that makes sense. Uh, yeah. I mean, if everybody took one step, it would, it would be enough to start the repair of the world immediately. I mean, nature would move in and take another three steps for us. That's something I've noticed. And and I think we can be all inclusive. You know, you, uh, like you say, uh, you can be a vegan permaculturist. You can Absolutely. be a raw food permaculturist. You can be a breatharian permaculturist. <laughs> I, I, it doesn't worry me. Right? And they're quite easy to design for. You know, it's, <laughs> I, they can all come along as long as they got ethics. But I don't want any extremists. You know, yeah. I don't want any, anybody who's going to damage somebody else and say that's got to be done for the cause. No, it doesn't. What has to be done for the cause is 
our actions have to have a benefit to the environment as to have benefit to other people. And that's to return some surplus, even if it's just extra information and experience we've gained. It's all potentially valuable to keep the system moving in a positive direction. If, if we all just take a move, a little bit of move from our comfort zone, wherever our comfort zone is, I don't care if you have to take the recycling down the road in your Lamborghini. If that's your first move, fine. Fine. <laughs> I don't care. You know, as long as we all just make a little move, you know, that, that's, and, and, and I, we'll all start to move, you know, we'll all go together. It's fine. Um, everybody's got a different comfort zone to move from. Absolutely. Hey, as we wrap up, can you tell us a little bit more about this new course you have coming? Is that going to be a new version of a PDC? Is it its own thing, standalone? Exactly what 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 is that going to be, and, and when can people expect to see it available? It's going to be a PDC. Um, it'll be certificated um, with you know the normal processes and design exercise and everything else. It's going to it's going to cover way over 72 hours, but there's the, the normal curricula. It's going to cover the 14 chapters of the designer's manual. And it will be over, it will be, um, you're going to get um, a, a, just a, an hour or two each week of lessons, all in 10-minute segments with forums running underneath. Uh, over about 32 weeks, be quite a long course, but that small amount of information each week that you can ask questions on, and I'll be doing a Q&A on all those questions to camera with B-roll every week. So you'll get two 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 sessions a week. One is uh, myself Q&A in answering your questions that get selected to go into the Q&A with extra footage. Um, and um, it's it's a standard course, but I'm trying to do the best one I could ever do with all the you know as maximum input I can. And and I think it's I would estimate it's five times more information than I've ever given before in a in a PDC um, using the appropriate technology we have today. So um, I'm making very special footage that can that's that's specific for this event. Uh, um, it's been uh, an accumulation of, of information over time while I've been making all these films. Um, I've got all this extra footage, and we've been uh, we've been working to put it together in, a, in 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 the best way we can. I've tried to answer every single section of the course. Over the last three online courses, I've field I've I've fielded thirty thousand questions, so I know what people want answered and I'm, I'm i'm going out my way to answer all those you know all those types of questions so i've got the hit parade of of questions that i i want to make sure i'm i'm fully covering and and that's all part of this new event i think we'll be up in um a month i think we'll be you'll be seeing adverts coming out reasonably soon um with a new uh new new website up uh jeff com. cool Cool. Well, hey, man, I appreciate you being with us. I know uh, you're up pretty early there to be on on the air with me at this time of day. So, so thank you for being with us today, Jeff. Yeah, I'm off for a homegrown breakfast, and <laughs> and I'll, I'll see you soon. Thank you very much. Uh, you got anything? Last thoughts or anything you want to say before we uh, wrap up? Uh, last thoughts. I always like to say, you know, um, you know, make sure you're having fun while you're designing. Um, it's all. It's, it should all be an enjoyable event, and um, and stay tuned. And we'll keep trying to keep you informed and and give you useful stuff to learn from. 
Thank you again, Jeff. I really appreciate you being with us today. No worries. Thank you. Folks, with that, this has been Jack Spierka today along with Jeff Lawton, helping you figure out how to live that better life, times get tough, or even if they don't. With his head out the sunroof and his heart in the right place, plan B was foolproof. He drove off to her place and yelled out his feelings, among other stuff. It was too much tequila, or not quite enough. Too much tequila, or not quite enough. It's a semi-true story, believe it or not. I made up a few things, and there's some I forgot. But the life and the telling are both real to me. And they all run together and turn out to be. My true story Well the picture is fuzzy And the details are sorted It was on the same day God's own drunk was recorded A walking tall sheriff And a big Cadillac And me and my golf shoes On the hood making tracks This daring young singer Was under attack It's a semi-true story Believe it or not I made up a few things And there's some I forgot But the life and the talent Are both real to me And they all run together And turn out to be a semi-true story Well, the things that I've lived and I've dreamed and I've seen and I've heard You'll take the good with the bad and be glad to have every word It's a semi-true story Believe it or not I made up a few things And there's some I forgot But the life and the telling Are both real to me And they run like the rain All the way to the sea Semi-true